become a wheat field, you know. There is something life that gives it to it and then it produces and then more seeds come out and then you can slay the, sow the seeds later on and then it just keeps doing Well, there's got to be an originator with that. It's God. Uh, or if you like, uh, take the parable that Jesus gives of, uh, the, uh, of two men. Uh, one man is, and he's comparing this parable to people that follow Jesus, that follow Christ, okay? The one parable uh, is a man that's sitting down to build a tower, all right? Okay? I've got a chicken coop right now, okay, in my backyard. I mean, I think if Melody kicked the thing, I think it would fall down. I mean, it is, it, it is rickety, it's old, it's, and I'm trying to build a new chicken coop, all right? You know, well, how hard can a chicken coop be, right? You know, just chickens. That's all it is. They're light birds, you know. But, you know, I'm, I'm like, man, this is difficult. I mean, I'm trying to get the ground level. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make sure I got the right supplies. I went to get started on it, and I realized, you know, I don't have any three and a quarter inch nails because you got to have three and a quarter inch nails to put in a nail gun, a framing gun. You can't use, you know, you can't use two and three eighths or anything like that. It won't stick in a thing. So I'm like, I got to have this. You got to have that. What am I saying? I'm saying this, is that the man in the illustration, in the parable, in Luke 18, he sits down, and what is he doing at the table? He's thinking. He's thinking, how am I going to build this tower? Do I got enough money to build the tower? Am I going to be able to finish the tower once I start the tower, you know? And then the second man in the, in the parable is a man that is going to war. And his problem is that his army is smaller than the army that's coming to attack him. And now he's got to sit down and think, all right, you know, what's the strategy? Do I send more people out? Do I send these guys this way? Or do I send an, uh, an, an, ad, an, uh, an ambassador? Uh, do I send an, uh, an adversary? Do I send somebody out to, to uh, an ambassador to make peace and uh, uh, to settle this thing? What are both of these men doing? Both of these men are thinking men. They're considering something. And that's what a Christian does. And that's what Jesus compares them to. And he says, somebody that's going to follow after Christ, they're going to be somebody that sits down and thinks through some things. Even six-year-olds can do this, okay? All right? Somebody goes, well, you know, you know, it's just so easy to lead, lead kids to Christ. Listen, you've never done a vacation Bible school, my friend, okay? <laughs> if, if, if that's been your thought, all right? I mean, I've sat down with kids, with seven-year-olds. I'm like, just don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you believe that you're a sinner, that you're a liar, that, that, you've, that you've done wrong? Yes, yes, I believe all of those things. Well, uh, don't you think that you want to believe on Jesus? No, not right now. I've had seven-year-olds tell me that. Six-year-olds tell me that. You know, what's a lie? Well, that's something whenever you tell, you know, have you told a lie? Yes, I've told a lie. The, what does that make you? Well, that makes me a liar. Well, do you think you've sinned? No, I've not sinned. You know, what are they, they're, 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 they're trying to lie, they're trying to reason some things out in their minds and in their hearts. They're trying to, trying to do some things. So a child can think through these matters. Or take for another instance, take your Bibles over to Acts chapter number 8. And this, is, this kind of sealed the deal for me. You know, Acts 8 and verse number 23 say, what in the world does this have to do with Romans 8, 28? You know, and we know that all things work together for good. I'm getting somewhere. Just hold on with me, okay? All right, it's like a trip to South Dakota. Not that far there, all right? So, uh, 
Romans 8, or excuse me, Acts 8. In this story, in this account, true account here, you have Peter. There's a revival that's breaking out in Samaria. Uh, he, Peter is going up to investigate the matter. He's going to see what's really happening. He goes up there with John, and him and John see that this is the real deal. God is working. God is moving. The Samaritans are getting saved, just like Jesus prophesied. And then he starts to lay his hands on people. And in that group, there's somebody that gets saved, or makes a, I should say, makes a profession In the hype of all of it, there's this Simon the Sorcerer. And he makes a profession amidst all the crowd, okay? And he gets baptized, okay? Simon's there and he's laying hands on people. And and as he lays hands on people, they're receiving the Holy Ghost, all right? It's a miraculous thing that's happening here, okay? It's unusual. Simon looks back and he goes, whoa, this is awesome. And he goes up to Peter and he's like, this is, this is not King James English, okay? This is Matthew. You know, how much does that cost? And Peter is appalled, you know? Because basically what Simon is saying, he was, he's saying, how much does salvation cost? How, how much does the Holy Spirit cost? How much does God cost, you know? What, what do I have to dish out to get this God thing on my side? And look what Peter says to him in Acts 8 and verse number 23. He says to him, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What happened here? I thought it said that the Simon the sorcerer, I thought he believed. I thought he was baptized. I thought, I thought what was happening? You know what it was? False profession. Not thinking. He got in the hype. Everybody else was doing it. He gets involved. And guess what? He's not thinking because if he was thinking, if he really knew what he was doing, then guess what? He would have realized that you can't buy God. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can't buy salvation. And even and his response, he says, well, pray for me, you know, that this evil that you've talked to me doesn't come upon me, you know. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Saul, doesn't it? Whenever he was approached about his wickedness and his sin, what happens? He's not wanting to repent. He's wanting to alleviate himself from the consequences. Oftentimes, that's what people that are not Christians, they really want. They just want to be alleviated from the consequences. But a Christian knows some things. We are not unthinking people. Even in the word that Jesus says in his ministry, he says, repent and believe the gospel. You know what the word repent literally means? It literally means to think differently about a subject. Or to change your mind. Or to reconsider. That's what the word means. So, I might propose to you that it's impossible to become a Christian unless you think. Because you, can't, because you cannot repent without thinking. Because that's what the word means. It means to change your mind. It means to reconsider. It means to think about something. Hey, consider the matter differently. You thought you were going to heaven because you said a prayer or you got baptized or because uh, you went to catechism or you, were, uh, you grew up in a church or your parents were saved or whatever. 
whatever it might have been. And you're putting all of these parameters on why I'm saved, but yet you're missing the big question. You're missing the big answer. And the big answer is this. I'm saved because Jesus Christ, because I realize that none of those things, being a good person, amen, doesn't save me. I realize that I'm reconsidering it. I'm changing my mind and I'm saying, no, that doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. Jesus saves me. I'm thinking through some things. We find here too... That he says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. Christians are thinking people. The world may be able to remove a gallbladder and you can get out the next day. You know? It may be able to figure out some unique and amazing characteristics about your body. They may be able to rebuild an engine in 45 minutes or less like they do on the NHRA circuit. But you know what? Here's the thing. You can do all of those things. Be as smart as you want to be. But listen, removing gallbladders and learning how to change out engines is not going to answer life's toughest questions. (laughs) Why am I so sad? Why am I not happy with life when I have so much? Why do so 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 many people get so sick around me? Why is there so much anger and hate in the world? Why do people die? What happens after we die? Those Those are the questions that are real. Secondly, I would tell you this, the second point... I want to give to you tonight is this, is that not only are Christians thinking people, but secondly, I think it's quite obvious, is that um, Paul is not teaching something new. With the word we, it's quite obvious that he's telling these believers in Rome that you already know this. In fact, I know that they know that because the word know doesn't mean, in this particular case, doesn't mean to be taught. It's not the idea that I teach you something and you know it now. The word know here is the inherent knowledge of something, all right? Let me illustrate. If I am in Yellowstone National Park and, and uh, I'm walking with a buddy of mine and uh, we go coming down a trail and a grizzly bear comes out of the trail, all right? I don't look back at my buddy and say, hey, get the B section of the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know what I mean? Get your smartphone out, you know, and and take a picture of this uh, creature in front of me and tell me whether it's dangerous or not, you know. I inherently know by looking at that, you know, my buddy's like, oh, it's a berry bear, you know. (laughs) I don't care what kind of bear it is, you know. You ever heard of a berry bear? I never heard of a berry bear before until I went to Alaska. They, they literally just eat berries. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, they, when somebody will shoot them and eat them, uh, they actually taste like blueberries. There's a blueberry taste to them. Uh, I don't care if it's a 
berry bear or if it's a landfill bear. I don't care what kind of bear it is. It's a bear. I don't want it, okay? I'm immediately sensing nervousness. I'm immediately sensing anxiety. I'm immediately uh, feeling the adrenal glands give out this adrenaline rush that of, of, of what am I going to do next? I'm thinking through things. Why? Because I inherently know that the situation that I'm in is dangerous. And in this case here in Romans 8.28, when he says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them or that are called according to his purpose. He says the word know, the word there, the word know there is an intuitive knowledge. Like, if you were, if you were, if you just got saved a few weeks ago. And I would not need to teach you Romans 8.28. It's intuitive. You would be like, yeah, that makes sense. I get that. Yeah, God's good. Amen? I don't understand it all. I don't understand all the ways that he is good. I don't understand how he does everything. But yes, God's good. Everything that God is going to do in my life is good. And hey, at the worst of it, at the worst of it, and I'm going to fall here, uh, at the worst of it, guess what? At the end, if it's everything is bad, I can bank on going to heaven through Jesus Christ. Amen? So I could have the worst things happen to me. And I've dealt with a couple of people like that. Where I, I'm even sitting there going, at least your sins are forgiven, you know? You know, you're going, I don't, I don't know what to say almost. It's like, you got it bad right now, you know? But even in something so bad as that, you can say, you know what? My sins are forgiven. I've got a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I know this. I know it. You, it try to talk to somebody that's in the world about this, Bruce. They're not going to understand. You know what I mean? Well, how do you know that you're a Christian? You know, I mean, can you give me something? I just know. I know. You know, Romans 8, 16, he tells us there that his spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And, and just as much as that is true, he says, and, I, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. This is not new teaching. Uh, John teaches the same thing. But you have an unction from the Holy One and you, what, know all things. Uh, he says in, uh, the same, in the same chapter at the, end, at the end, he says, And this is truth and no lie, even as it has been taught you, and ye shall abide in him. Um, you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you all things and is truth. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that the Holy Spirit of God is working in our hearts intuitively, naturally, in a sense that he, he is teaching us things right now? He's helping us learn and understand that God is a good God. This knowledge is basic for all believers, for every one of us, that all things work together for good. And that would be my third point. Is that simply, not only do our Christians thinking people, and not only, secondly, uh, would, I, would I tell you this, is that this is not something new, this is not some new truth, this is not something that is um, uh, cutting edge. No, you, you know this. I mean, the moment I got saved at 19 years old, I know not everybody has the same experiences or anything like that, but when I got saved, 
Man, I knew I was saved and I knew that God was good. I knew it. I knew God was good. Nobody had to, I didn't even, I didn't even, I'd never even read the Bible all the way through or anything like that. But I knew God was good because of what he had just done for me. I know that all things, I want to be able to quote to you Romans 8, 28, but if you would have quoted it to me, I'd have been like, yeah, <laughs> of course. Sure, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. There's nothing that I disagree with that statement whatsoever. And the third thing is this, is that there are no exceptions to the promise. You heard me right. There are no exceptions to the promise. There's no exceptions to Romans 8.28. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, before you get ahead of me, I know that the exception is to believers. I want to deal with that in just a moment. But I'm referring to the all things part here. The all things part. He says all things. All of life. And who does it work out good for? Says it twice. To them. To them. So we're not, we're not just talking about God's glory here. All right? Though God gets the glory in everything. Amen? We're talking about that God works all things together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I, I, I gave the lesson last night, but the blue isn't here. Maybe he's listening online or anything. He said, maybe just don't walk into... Uh, a room where somebody just lost a loved one and quote this verse, you know what I mean? Probably not the best sensitive, sensitive thing to do, you know what I mean? That's practical. I like that, you know? Yeah, we don't just need to just flip off verses just like, hey, well, hey, you ought to get over it, you know what I mean? All God, you know, God works all things together for good. Um, that could be a little insensitive, okay? So be careful how you say that. But we ought to all realize that in time, that whatever it might be, that all, God works all things together for good. You might lose an arm. God works all things together for good. You might, you might go bankrupt. God works all things together for good. You might lose something very special in your life. God works all things together for good. You might blow it one day and do something real stupid. God works all things together for good. Do you understand that? No, I don't understand how the great sovereign God of all the universe ties all the loose ends together. I don't understand that, okay? I can't even get fishing knots undone out of my fishing lines, okay? All right? So, I mean, how am I going to be able to understand how God is going to take every single believer in here's life and whatever happens to you, to, to, whatever happens to you or whatever you do or don't do, always remember that's a part of life. It's not just what you do in life, it's what you don't do in life too. All right? There are choices and consequences for both. Maybe good, maybe bad. In the, in the immediate. But whatever it is, God works all of that to good. To good. Now, I do think that the immediate context, if you were to go back up just a couple of verses, especially verse number 18, 
whenever he says those words, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be cared or compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I think immediate context is obvious. That whatever suffering you're going through, that God's working that together for his good, for your good, for your good, to them. But he broadens the subject in verse number 28 most clearly when he says, and we know that all things work together. That's how Paul kind of works out his logic a lot of times whenever you're reading, the, whenever you're reading his epistles. He kind of sometimes will begin small and work it up and work it up. And to this point right here, he broadened it so, so much, doesn't he? Or he may even do it the other way around. I'm just trying to help you whenever you, whenever you read Paul's, Paul's epistles. Sometimes he starts really broad and then he works it down to even small. But in this case, he works small and works it up to very broad and says, no, 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 I'm telling you, all things... Whatever trial, whatever goodness, whatever grace, whatever sin, whatever temptation, whatever problem, whatever it is that came into your life, whatever it was, whatever it happened, God is going to work that for your good. And if you don't think that, then guess what? Your thinking is off. We're not thinking correctly. We don't, and, and this is a faith thing, Amen. You got to live by faith by, of Romans eight twenty eight. You 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 can't. You've got to take that verse by faith because you're not in in the in the moment. If something terrible were to happen to you tomorrow, in the moment, you're not going to see Romans eight twenty eight. In the moment, you can't see that. Now, as time progresses, you can believe it though. And you can take hold of it as a promise of God and say, this is God's promise. I don't understand it. I don't know how it's going to work out. But aren't you glad that the Bible says, in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths? That's a great verse. You acknowledge God and he'll direct your paths. It's not up to you to direct your paths. It's not up to you to figure out how God's going to work it all out for your goodness. It doesn't. So all of that is about the very first part. So the fourth, fourth point, I think, has been very plain to this point, but this promise is reserved for believers. And I just want to put that plainly. I've already made that plain, I believe. There are some principles in the Bible, I believe, that are, are good principles to matter who you are. Read the Proverbs. Amen. You know... There's good principles in there. It doesn't matter if you're saved or unsaved. You could follow a lot of the Proverbs and really have some, perhaps have some success with them because they're just, they're just godly principles that are laid out for us, all right? But this is not one of those godly principles. This is a godly promise reserved for godly people, all right? Because, listen, my friend, it doesn't all work out for good to them that don't love God and to them are not a called according to his purpose, Amen. It doesn't work out for their good. Look how rich they are. Look how famous they are. Look how much they've got. Or look at all their family. Look how happy they are. Yeah. But what is that worth when it's all said and done? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Right? When you're dead and gone, all of that is not going to to matter whenever you're suffering forever without Jesus Christ and God Almighty in hell. Not enjoying his eternal bliss and enjoying his eternal happiness, you're not going to be able to do that. 
It is reserved to those that love God. Well, I guess a good question would be who loves God, right? Is he sort of referring to some nebulous being out there? No. Romans 8 and the whole entire book of Romans is obvious in reference to the one true God. But I think a good example for us might be held out for us in 1 John chapter number 4 and verse number 7. Turn over there if you will. This promise is reserved, number 4, to those that are saved. To those that are saved. It is to those that are saved. And that's broken up into two very simple categories. It says, first, it, says it is broken up to those that are um, love that love God. He says in verse number 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. All right? Knoweth God. You see that? They loveth God is born of God. And they knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In verse 10, he says this, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that, God, that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our Sins. Then go all the way down to verse number 19, all right? I'm skipping over a lot here. But verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Did you get the connection there? The connection should be quite obvious. We love God and we know that we love God because God loved us first. The amazing miraculous thing is not that we love God. The amazing miraculous thing is that God loves us, all right? We're sinners. We're lost. And here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is how we know we love God. By how? By how we treat his son. What have you done with Jesus? If somebody came up to me and was like, you know what, Matthew, I really, I really love you. I really love you. But man, your kid is really stupid, you know what I mean? I can't stand your stupid kid. I'm like, What? You love me, but you're caught. Now, that would be one thing if my kid had done something foolish and had been arrogant, prideful, and done a lot of really evil things to me. Okay, that that might be one thing. But we're talking about the eternal son of perfect son of God who followed every single thing that God the Father told him to do. He did it exactly perfect. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so if somebody rejects Jesus, they reject God. You can't love God without loving Jesus. So who loves God? It's those people that love Jesus. It's those people that have given their lives over to Jesus Christ the Lord. And, um, and um, it's those people that have given Jesus Christ the Lord. And so we have to realize that in our hearts and in our lives that God has put in our hearts this love for him, this obedience to him. And so this promise is held out exclusively to those that love God. Those that love God. Do you love God? Well, the question you need to ask yourself is this. Do I love Jesus? Well, how do you answer that question? Very simply. All you have to ask yourself is this. Have I obeyed God in asking Jesus to be my Savior? Yes, I have. And in doing so, we realize that you know what? God is good. My good. Isn't it amazing that God would work things out together for our good? Of course for his good. Of course for his glory. I mean, 
I mean, I could stand here all day long and give praise to God and say, you know what? Glory to God. Glory to God. God's going to get the glory and everything. But God is so good to us that he would actually work out all things together for good to them. I don't understand that. But that's a good God. That's a good God, my friend. And the danger comes. Here's the danger, okay? The danger is when, let's just, you sin, you do wrong, okay? You sin, you do wrong. Where's God? I thought God was going to give me the victory. I, mean, I thought God was going to be there for me. What, did you, what have you just done? You've denied the goodness of God. God, something, something drastic, something tragic happens in your life. Something gets taken from you. I thought God was going to do this for me. I thought God was going to help me. I thought God was going to do something for me. What, what's, uh, what's, what's going on? I thought God was a good God. I mean, I went to church and they said, and we used to sing, God is so good. God is so good. And then this happens to me. I mean, I, 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 I lose a kid, I get a divorce, I mean, I go bankrupt, I get this happened to me, that happened to me, and, and now God is, you're saying that God is good to me? Yeah, I'm, what I'm saying to you tonight is this, is that those people that are saved inherently, intuitively, basically know that God is a good God. Not only is he a good God, but that he's actually good to us that love him. And who are the called according to his purpose. I'm not going to get into all of that tonight. But I do want to bring this one verse out. The gifts and calling of God are not, he says in Romans 11, 29, are without repentance. Without repentance. God's goodness to you is never going to be pulled back from you, my friend. And never is pulled back from you. And if you ever think that it is then you can recognize that that's not God, but that's Satan trying to get in your little heart and our little minds and try to convince us that your God isn't good. Can anybody think of a story in the Bible, like in Genesis chapter number 3, of a little lady named Eve. And Satan tempted her with what? Oh. God won't let you eat of the tree of the good a tree of God, knowledge of good and evil, will he? Huh. What kind of God is that? Holding something back from you. I mean, you deserve that. You deserve to know what's good and evil. Everybody, we know what's good and evil. It sure didn't help us, did it? It damned us and it condemned us all. But just a little seed of doubt grew up into a very large plant. In North Carolina, in the 1800s, they were having, in where I live at, they were having a, um, a lot of rain. 
And, uh, and where I live at, it's uh, red clay dirt. All right? When you get red clay on, when you get red clay dirt on you, I mean, it ain't coming off, man. It stains everything. But they're having a lot of problem with erosion. So somebody came up with a really good idea. They knew of this plant that they had seen when they were traveling abroad called kudzu. And they brought it over. I think it was from Australia. Could be wrong. Correct me if you will. You can Google it up there. And they brought the kudzu over, and they began to plant it. And it did what it was supposed to do. It held the soil so that it would prevent erosion. But if you go to where North Carolina is today, they found out that kudzu really likes the climate of North Carolina. And in the wintertime, it will all die seemingly. But in the springtime, be, it will be everywhere. It grows like wildfire. It would literally grow across the roads if it weren't for cars driving over it. It is, takes over forest. It's an invasive species is what it is. And it seems so small. And it might correct a little problem. But you know what? The problem is this. Is that when we allow little seeds of doubt into our heart, that maybe God is not so good. Maybe he's not really that good of a God. I know what I've heard and I've sang the songs, but you know, you just, here it is. You just don't know what I've been through. No, my friend, I don't. But God does. And he's working all things together for good to them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. May God help each one of us that believe upon the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to continually trust in the goodness of God. Father, we're thankful for the word of God. Thankful for this great assurance of salvation that we have in God. That we can experience and know your goodness to its fullest extent in our lives. May we trust that. May we have faith to believe that. And if there's one that's lost that doesn't know you as Savior here tonight, that has never experienced the goodness of God, but has rather been rejecting that goodness and has turned their minds and hearts away from the goodness of God. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's an adult, Lord. And they've never truly been saved by Jesus Christ. God, I pray that they'd be saved tonight. Is there anybody here tonight that says, Pastor, pray for me. I've never been saved. I've never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Pray for me, Pastor. Father, we're thankful for your goodness, for your grace. Now help us to abide in that goodness for as long as we may live. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for any Christian out there, Lord, tonight. Maybe they're not here underneath the sound of our, my voice, Lord, and of your word. Maybe they're listening by live stream. Maybe uh, they're uh, somebody that's in our church that, Lord, has just gone through a difficult time. May, Lord, they be able to find great comfort and help in the words of Romans 8.28. For your glory in Jesus' name.
Amen. God bless you.